We are turning over a very, very large page as we leave last year behind and we're entering a new year this week. And um, I just know that God has a new season and He has a new thing. And God has a new mercy for us every single day. And we walk within His grace as we always have. He never changes. Amen? Amen. And so we can thank Him in advance for what we know He is going to do in the future, which is all good. Even if it doesn't feel like it, it is. Amen? Amen. That's why the Bible says, in all things, glorify God. In all things. It doesn't say for all things, but inside of everything. You raise your hands and you worship Him and you glorify Him. Inside of that disagreement, you worship and praise God. Inside of Inside, in front of that mountain, right in the middle of that valley, wherever you find yourself, whether it be dark or whether it be light, you raise your hands and you glorify God. Why? Because this is God's will for you. I have decided, and I know that you have too, that our lives are bookended. The beginning and the end of our lives from start to finish is all about one thing and one thing alone. You don't have to run out there and search for a purpose. Nobody has to. God is not hiding your purpose from you. No, we all have the same purpose, and that is to live for His glory. I don't care where you end up buying a house, you are to live for His glory. Whoever you get to be married to, you are to live for His glory. How many kids you end up having, you are to live for His glory. Whatever your career path ends up being, you are to live for His glory, for that is God's will for your life. And don't hurt yourself over wondering if I followed God's will, God's career path for me. No, God's, God's will is for you to glorify Him in the career path you have, to glorify Him in the marriage that you have, to glorify Him with the children that you do have. Amen? This is the will of God for our lives. Amen? So I want you, in your mind, to see your life bookended by two moments, the beginning and the end, and that whole entire portion of life is about a life glorifying God. And may that be on people's minds as I say farewell and one day when you say farewell may people look at you and go you know what that person's life glorified God from beginning to end in hard times and in good times they knew how to glorify him amen Amen. that's the best use of life I want to speak with you in short about well there's seven pages so (laughs) hang in there we're going to move fast I want to short (laughs) shortly talk to you about four essentials to finishing well. Four essentials to finishing well. You also might want to title this Four Essentials for Standing Firm. Of everything that I would like to share with you, which there are many things, as we exit one decade into another, I thought that there couldn't be anything more important than this. How can I ensure and assure that I would stand firm no matter what. You don't know what tomorrow brings. But you can now decide what your response is going to be when you get there. Amen? You can now decide how you're going to act no matter what comes your way in this next decade. Four essentials for enduring to the end. I want to give you a little bit of a backdrop before I read to you a verse or a portion of scriptures that came from the desk of the Apostle Paul. In the year 64 AD, Nero was slowly descending into madness. He was going crazy. And on the night of 18th, of July the 18th of that same year, 64 AD, a great fire was started, lasted for an entire week and burnt down much of Rome. And ancient historians, who, uh, ancient historians unanimously accuses or accused Nero uh, for starting this fire. It was a strategy on his part as he was going crazy, day by, uh, more crazy day by day. He hated old buildings. He hated old architecture. And there were certain districts within the city he had enemies with. And they said that he started this fire to burn down most or lots, uh, a big part of Rome. Ancient historians who accused him of arson includes 
Pliny the Elder, whose writings we still have. It includes Suetonius, whose writings we still have, and Cassius, Cassius Dio, whose writings we still have. The only ancient historian who does not accuse Nero himself of starting this fire is Tacitus, or Tacitus, who simply said that, I am not sure, referring to who started this fire. But the only um, uh, thing we need to know is that this happened and that the city wasn't well prepared for something, for a big problem this size. And everybody was blaming Nero for not being able to take care of this crisis that they were facing. And in efforts for him to excuse himself and um, to attempt to shift the blame, since many were blaming him for it, he put all the blame squarely on the, on the shoulders of all Christians. And he said, those, those Christians, they are starting riots, and they started this fire. And they were accused of arson. And in one foul swoop, all Christians became criminal, criminals in the eyes of the government, the authorities that were, and also the public. I want to read to you from Jamie Fawcett Brown's commentary that gives a historical background regarding the time of persecution that the Christians experienced because of this event right here that Nero started. And I quote, they say that in 64 AD, there was this great fire at Rome which Nero made the prefix, the pretext, excuse me, for his persecution of the Christians. Every cruelty was heaped on them. Some were crucified. Some were arrayed in the skins of wild beasts and hunted to death by dogs. Some were wrapped in pitched robes, robes dipped in tar, and set on fire by night to illuminate the circus of the Vatican and gardens of Nero, while the monster Nero himself mixed among the spectators in garbs of, of uh, charioteering. In other words, they were celebrating. It was like a big circus while these Christians were hanging burning so that they could have light. Now, after this event that started all of the persecution and Christians were being crucified and eaten by wild dogs because they were covered in, in, in animal skin and dead meat, and while they, were burnt, while they were burnt in tar, after all of this happened, the Apostle Paul was arrested and uh, he was arrested on two charges, a double charge. First, of being one of the Christians who had conspired and set Rome on fire. This is history. That was the first uh, criminal act on his part that they said he was guilty of. And the second was that he was uh, introducing an unlawful religion. And as Paul was chained in this prison in Rome, which was the worst there was, Knowing that he had come to the end of his life, the end of his ministry, this is the backdrop of the moments that Paul then took a pen and paper and wrote this letter to Timothy. He writes in 2 Timothy 4 verse 6 through 8, that for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Can you hear the weightiness of those statements now knowing the backdrop of this letter? Here's a man who was responsible for starting these churches who are now being burnt, eaten by wild dogs, and crucified. He says, I have finished the race. I have fought the fight. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but also all those who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy. Why? For Demas, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Here we have two men who had ministered together, Paul and Demas. 
The one is looking forward towards the crown of glory, the crown of righteousness. The other one is looking forward to a comfortable life in Thessalonica. The one is the mentor, the other one is the mentoree. The one is the teacher, the other one is the student. One endured, he finished his race, looking forward to the crown of righteousness. The other one walked away and is never to be heard of again, ever. We do not know what ultimately happened to Demas, but we never heard of him, as I mentioned. Now in this next portion of scripture, which was written years prior, Paul calls Demas the same man that abandoned him, a fellow worker in the ministry. Philemon 23 verse 24 says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, this next guy whose name I can't pronounce, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. You see, it's very clear that Demas was not able to continue. He was not able to finish. He was not able to endure. And the reason could not be clearer. It was because he loved this world. This is a warning from scriptures to us that it's the probability is extremely high that the one who loves this world cannot and will not endure. It's probable that they too will defect from the work of God. It doesn't say that Demas went to hell. It doesn't say his name was taken out of the book of life. But he is known as the one who deserted the faithful. And he will be known as that person forever. Because he loved this world. There's nothing recorded that he ever did for God. From that moment on. Who knows what he will receive if and when he arrived in heaven, maybe years after Paul did. Because as Paul wrote this letter, it was shortly after this that he was beheaded. And so here we see that it was because Demas loved this world that this happened. Now there's a, there's a difference between enjoying life and loving this world. There's a huge difference to enjoy life is to live life to the full. To go to bed feeling like, wow, wow. To wake up in the morning with an excitement about what could be. To enjoy life has to do with growing, with understanding, with knowing, with discovering, with exploring, with supporting others in the love of God, with giving, with sowing, with preaching, with teaching, and raising others in the Word are all, these are all very extremely fulfilling. To enjoy life is to use every moment and every opportunity to its maximum capacity. How can you do that? By fulfilling the purpose that you have. What is your purpose? To glorify God. No, mine is to be wealthy. No, it's not. I was wondering about this as a father raising my children. Do I raise my children towards danger or towards safety? Which one do you think I would do? Safety. My son is a computer geek. He's always putting things together so that they can work even less better. <laughs> I'm trying to see if he's here. <laughs> I'm like, Robert, what are all these wires? Why is the TV apart again? No, Dad, I'm fixing everything. Now suddenly we have three ways of playing the same movie. <laughs> and uh, so we had, uh, we had some wonderful time yesterday with uh, my wife. She's at home. She's, um, she's caring for her dad a little bit. And uh, we just want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us online. And also Tony, my sister, is with them. And so Robert's busy fixing everything for them like so that everything can be entertaining but since he is you know studying software and all of the above of course he needs to have access to the computer so uh, when he's on the computer he's on the computer where everybody can watch him all the time walking past him all the time watching why 
um, because I want to raise him towards safety. He can do nothing on that computer other than his homework. That's what he does. He's also homeschooled, and he does it through the computer. So there are only these things he's allowed to do on the computer. He's not allowed to go on Google. He's not allowed to do these things. Why not? Because I want to raise him towards safety, right? Now, this is not a doctrine. I'm just telling you that there's a thought in my mind that always bothers me about this. Do you know that God said, Jesus said, it is more difficult for who to enter the kingdom of God? For a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God than what it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? Now, the eye of a needle, they, they didn't sew in the way we did. <laughs> they didn't have that little nice needle that we do have today. The eye of a needle was that little tiny hole in the wall of a city that if you got to the city late and the, and the gates were already shut for security purposes, the only way you could get back into the city is to take your camel, make it go on its knees, and push it through that little hole. Now, this is possible. It just takes a long time. And it's really hard to do. And it's more difficult. It is more difficult. Now listen, I didn't say this. <laughs> Jesus said it. And very few teach on it. But it's more difficult for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to get pushed through the eye of that needle. And sometimes you sit in church and you feel like, man, I'm getting pushed and pushed, and you know what? I'm actually not even feeling comfortable about this. Oh, this is not anymore. This is not working for me anymore. Guess what? That camel feels the same way, <laughs> right. because that's a narrow little road. Okay, that is not a wide road, where you get everything and all the space and all the freedom you want. No, it's a narrow path, and small is the gate. Jesus said, but it's more difficult for a wealthy man. Do I want my children to be wealthy? Knowing what I know, do I want my children to be wealthy? I struggle with this. Just like you can't even answer that question right now without feeling bad. Oh. I think we need an extractor fan on if that's okay, Lynn. Is that okay? I can tell you what I do want for my children. I want my children to be God-fearing all the days of their lives. I want my children to love God with all of their heart and all of their soul. I want my children to have no other God but the God of the Bible. I want my children to never be bound and chained by the vices that the people who love this world are bound by. And I never, I do not want my, if there's anything that's going to stop your child from entering the kingdom of God, you want your child rid of that thing. Isn't this true? Now, again, here, what we do is I encourage people, like I've never heard anybody teach on this. Really, I've never heard anybody teach on this, but I get to sleep with that verse in my mind and heart. I want my children wealthy. But eternally more important than that, I want my children serving God. I want them to enter the kingdom of God. It's more important. But the way we live proves that we are in love with this world and we have no idea that we are spending most of our money and most of our time and most of our effort trying to get our children to a place where they can earn more, be more successful. Now, I don't think it's bad. I just think what's bad is that we hardly do almost a fraction of the same on the other side of that coin, getting them established in the Word of God and getting them established and ready to serve God all their lives. Amen? And so if that's true for our children, guess what's true for you and God? Does God want you healthy, wealthy? Yes, He wants you all of that. But guess what's more important to Him? Your soul. Your soul. Why do you think in the Bible that, you know, there's actually this example in the Bible of church discipline where, um, where they were told to kick a guy out of church for the destruction of the flesh so that his soul might be saved. It doesn't matter what the cost is. Your soul has got to be saved. 
Amen? So here we see the Apostle Paul compared to Demas. Even though Paul is going through this extremely hard times, he's looking forward to a crown. Demas, who chased after Thessalonica because he loved the world. And by the way, Thessalonica, the historian said that he had all his business, all his business deals was in Thessalonica, Demas's. All of his business contacts was in Thessalonica. And thus, the reason why he went back to Thessalonica, he was ready to go and fill the coffers and set himself up. So we see that there's a difference between enjoying life and loving this world, and to enjoy life is to live it to the full, where you can go to bed with a clear conscience and wake up with great eagerness to see what God can do through your life today once again. But the opposite of enjoying life is to love this world. And to love this world is to be self-serving, period. To love this world is to have one goal in mind, and that is self-gratification, my comfort. Living for the next vacation, living for the next party, living for the next rock concert downtown, living for the next, Ameri living for the American dream. This is actually loving this world. Living toward an easy life instead of a faithful and fruitful life. This is what it means to love this world. So yeah, through the letter the Apostle Paul wrote Timothy, God is showing us the danger of falling in love with this world. Money being the, the, the worst of it all. The question of this next year and the question that you have to answer yourself in this next decade and beyond is this. Will you endure to the end? Will you endure? How are you going to end this thing? How are you going to land this plane? Most people don't think about it because you don't want to. We don't want to. We don't like it. But how are you going to end is a question because it determines how you start the next. You see, the Apostle Paul who said, I have run my race, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, also said in another context, that, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Even though he said, I ran my race, and I finished, and I kept the course. He's the same guy that says, but by God's grace, I am what I am. Paul attributed all of his faithfulness to the grace of God. So must you, and so must I. So here are the four essentials I want to share with you in short for enduring to the end. Enduring to the end. What is it that I have to look at right now at this transition of life between two decades and two years as to the decisions I can make that will help me get out to the other side and not be a Demas? The first is a daily time of communion with God. A daily time of communion with God. Demas did not wake up one day and decided to make a complete turn into the opposite direction. He didn't just wake up and go like, yeah, that's it, I'm done, I'm, I'm turning around. That turnabout started a long time before he actually took his bag and walked out the door. It was over time that Demas drifted into that deception. But here's the, here's the thing. Like Demas, one can be on a mission or on a missionary trip with a great apostle like the apostle Paul and still drift into deception. This guy was a close worker. He was a disciple of the apostle Paul. Can you imagine that? He traveled with the Apostle Paul. He ministered with the Apostle Paul. They started churches together. And here he is, completely deceived. Just like Demas, one can have a mentor and never be mentored. One can have a teacher, yet never be taught. One can have a leader, but never be led. I could give you one red flag that I see in myself and I'm sure many people can see within themselves. When I sit down to listen to somebody, I oftentimes sit down to evaluate what they say and to look, 
looking to hear them affirm what I already believe. You follow what I'm saying? <laughs> so oftentimes what we do is we go, we sit down and we wait and we listen to be affirmed of what we already have decided on. We are not, we are not here to be taught. We are here to be affirmed. To be affirmed. That right there is a sign that I can have a teacher but never be taught. I can have a mentor but never be mentored. I, I can have a leader but never be led. I can have an Apostle Paul but I remain a Demas. And my future has been decided. You see, Demas was in love with this present world. Everyone, everyone here, everyone in the world is in love with something. John said, do not love this world. But you see, you cannot simply decide to not love this world and so create this vacuum in your heart. Do you love this world? No, I don't love this world. Do you love anything? Nope, I love nothing. No, everybody loves something. And what you choose to love determines the things you no longer really love that much. For us to stop loving this world, we have to start loving God. So let me say it this way. When I become increasingly more taken by God, I will become less and less attracted to this world. The more I love God, the less I love this world. The more I love this world, the less I will have the capacity, or the smaller capacity, my capacity becomes to love God. James 4.4 4 says, well, let me just say this. Some of you might go, well, you know what? I realize my struggle in loving God. Why do I struggle to love God? Someone might say, well, it's probably because I spend my every waking moment thinking about how to make more money. This is probably the reason why. I like to say probably because <laughs> only the willing would own up, <laughs> right? It's tough to love God and chase off to the world at the same time. James 4 verse 4 says, You unfaithful people, don't you know that love for this evil world is hatred toward God? Whoever wants to be a friend of this world is an enemy of God. You can be a friend of the world in many ways. You can be a friend of the world by... Making money your God, making comfort your God, making prominence your God. If these things are goals, they are gods. Let me say it differently. If these things are ultimate goals, they are gods. You have to have financial goals. Don't ever say that I don't encourage you to have financial goals. Of course you do. You have to work hard. You have to work for your money. It's too hot in here, brother. Thank you. No. No? Okay, don't worry. It's not too hot, everybody. <laughs> okay. Of course, you have to be responsible. You have to be fruitful. You have to be productive, but not selfish at the same time. So here in James 4.4, 4, it says that the one who loves this world is an enemy of God, an actual enemy of God. I want to read to you the same portion of Scripture in, in James 4.4 4 in, the, in the Living Bible. It says it more clearer. It says, you are like an unfaithful wife who loves her husband's enemies. Don't you realize that making friends with God's enemies, the evil pleasures of this world, makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, that if your aim is to enjoy the evil pleasures of the unsaved world, you cannot also be a friend of God. Our time of daily focused communion with God is a time where our love for God can be refreshed in our hearts. Now, it's almost like words falling on deaf ears when you say, you should spend time with God every day. It's, uh, it falls on deaf ears because we've heard it so many times and we've said it so many times and we've attempted it so many times and we've failed at it so many times. It's like, oh yeah, okay, what's the next point? <laughs> and I know this because I do this. But I can't stress it enough to tell you that being in the ministry my whole entire working life, 
that I have seen so many Demises. I know some, a lot more than, than the opposite. You too, if you have been a minister for any length of time, you know more Demises than what you know real disciples. It's just so. Because most people fall in love with the world and off they go. And you go like, yeah, well, when are you going to come to church again? Or when are you going to, or when are you going to get serious with God? Or when are you going to open up your Bible? Do you even have one anymore? And, you know, you know those kind of people? And then it's like, you know, um, uh, the examples that I have of people who, who start off without a job, living in their car, or just having no, nothing to their name, and for us to put our arms around them and hug them, and I hope some of them are watching, put our arms around them and hug them, and God help this man with his next interview that he finds a job. And by the way, here's some food for you, okay? Because I know you, you got nothing. And here's some money so you can get through this week, okay? And help them find jobs. And then they find jobs, and guess what? Gone. They might be watching, and I hope they are. I pray, God, they lose their jobs. And I know it sounds harsh, but do we have a perspective of eternity? Do we even have perspective of the reality of, of, of spiritual reality? No. But I pray, God, that they first just wake up and serve God with what God did for them, with, with the things that God already gave them. But if my son ever and my daughter ever came to the place where they became too busy or too involved or too taken by their prominence and what they are doing and what they are earning and what they are getting, all, all of the, if that sucks them up and, and swallows them up, I pray, God, yeah. that He will love them enough to change that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, many people will disagree with me, and that's okay. Yeah. You raise your children as you wish. But here we see Demas ending up nowhere, doing nothing, but rebuked by Paul at the end of his life. And our focus time with communion with God every day in our lives will refresh our hearts. I mean, in marriage, communion makes room for soul connection, doesn't it? Communion makes room for soul connection. Um, only because my wife and I have certain times where our souls can connect and we can look in each other's eyes and we can get to know each other better and we can talk more about things. Can I fall more in love with who she already is? And can she fall in love with who I am? You see, this is how we know somebody is by spending time with them. And God speaks to us how? Through the scriptures, not through movies. Not through a walk in the park or the forest. Not through feelings or imaginations. Those are all self-made gods. God speaks to us how? Through His already spoken word. That's how God speaks to us. That's how God speaks to us. Through His already spoken word. Now we speak to God how? Through prayer. And as we commune with Him through the word and prayer, word and prayer, word and prayer, so we get to know Him more. And when we get to know Him more, we too we'll fall in love with Him in a greater way. And when we fall in love with God, we purge ourselves from the love of the world. So the question we ask ourselves, and, and you know, I wanted to, I wanted to give you a Reader's, a Reader's Digest version of New Year's message, but what I really want to do is I want to tell you that in the long range, in the long, long haul of life, in the next 10 years of life and more, there are these things we need to know, that if our communion with God is not sustained. We will fall in love with the world, and as we saw happen to Demas, so it probably, the probability is very high that that too will happen to us. And it would be wonderful for us to purge ourselves from the love of the world, and there's only one way of doing it. It's falling in love with God. And how do you fall in love with God? Yeah. Communion, just like it is in marriage. The second essential to finishing well is a daily appropriation of the gospel. A daily appropriation of the gospel. We need to learn to live by the gospel every day of our lives. We need to learn to live by the gospel every day of our lives. I always used to look at the gospel as a message for the unbeliever. And I know many people do that. We look at the gospel as, as it's a message for unbelievers only, all right? 
And uh, now that I've learned to look at the scriptures from an exegetic perspective instead of from an eisegetic perspective, I realize that we are to, the Bible says, believe the gospel, preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, obey the gospel. Now, we got the believe, proclaim, and preach good down, but the obey the gospel is something that we don't necessarily always know of or look at. But 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 says, He will punish those who do not know and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He's talking about the unsaved people that will not give in to the demands of the gospel, okay? He says that again in 1 Peter 4 verse 17, For it is time for judgment to fall with God's household. Let me say that again. For it is time for, for judgment to begin with God's household. Where does judgment begin, everybody? And then it says, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will it be? Now, remember, there are two judgments. Okay? The one is more like an assessment of a person's life. Demas will probably, if he does go to heaven, will have no crown, while the apostle Paul will have many. All right, so it begins with the household of God. And then it says, and, and what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There is an obedience required towards this gospel. So you might ask, okay, Jacques, well, what does it mean to obey the gospel? What does it mean to obey the gospel? To obey the gospel is to submit to its demands. It's simple. How can I obey Tony? I obey Tony by submitting to his demands. How can I obey Bob? By submitting to his command. The only way to obey somebody is by submitting to their commands, right? And here we are told to obey the gospel, and to obey the gospel is to submit to its demands. The gospel demands that you turn from yourself as Savior, you turn from yourself as Savior, as you turn to Christ as your Savior instead. To transition your faith off of self onto Christ. This is the demand of the gospel. That means to deny self as your own Savior and to proclaim Christ as the only Lord who saves. You might say, okay, well, whoever didn't, didn't obey the gospel? Peter, he didn't obey the gospel, remember? He started not obeying the gospel. He started obeying the demands that the flesh puts upon you in order to find significance for self. So Paul came to him and said to him, hey, you are playing the hypocrite. Stop it and repent. Change turn. Be done with that. He was not obeying the gospel. He started obeying the flesh's need for significance. So I have learned that I need the gospel every day of my life. Every one of us needs the gospel every day. I need to obey the gospel on a daily basis. I need to say, Jacques, when I look up in the mirror in the mornings, I need to go, Jacques, today... It's not going to be by your power, but it's going to be by His grace. Today, it's not going to be for your glory, but for His. Today, it's not going to be your way, but you're dead to self and alive unto Him. I need to appropriate this gospel the way I came to Him the first time and surrendered to Him. I need to do that for the rest of my life. That's what it means to appropriate the gospel. When you gave your life to the Lord... That's the first day of the rest of every day of your life, giving your life to the Lord. <laughs> I'm talking about those who want to know the essentials of remaining. The essentials of standing firm. The essentials of finishing well. Is appropriating the gospel on a daily basis. So why do I need the gospel on a daily basis? Because... The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God at work in me all the while. You see, it is by believing and obeying the gospel daily that I live with the assurance of God's love for me. You see, I got saved. And I can tell you, it was probably true for most of you, but the first thing that happened to me was the fact that, God, I love you. God, I love you for loving me so much that you would save me. Isn't your very first response after getting saved your love for God? Your second response, folks, is your love for others. It's like suddenly when I, when I got saved, I just wanted to, I just realized God's love for me and my love for Him, and now I just wanted to love everybody else with the love of God. It was just kind of like a natural thing. And anybody that has a radical, self, a radical transformation will tell you that. But the gospel is the story of God's love for me. 
So when I appropriate on a daily basis the gospel, and I don't just see it as a message for unsaved people, but I see it as a message for myself on a daily basis, I'm assured of God's love for me on a daily basis. It is by believing and obeying the gospel daily that I live with this confidence that I'm accepted by God in Christ every day. That's why I know I'm accepted. Not because somebody else keeps on telling me, God accepts you. Believe it. God accepts you. No, when I, when I know the gospel and I obey the gospel by saying, none of me and all of you now, I, I transfer my faith of self onto Christ and I throw myself on the cross in His arms. That moment right there, I know of His love for me. I'm assured thereof, and I'm also confident, confident that He's accepted me in Christ. It is by believing and obeying the gospel daily that I live with a divine affirmation that I am forgiven, that I live with the assurance of my righteous standing before God, that I live with the faith that my eternity in heaven has been secured. But what I find happens is, for most part, uh, People just trying to convince other people that God loves them. They're trying to convince people that they're saved. You've got to be sure of your salvation. Just be sure. The devil's trying to lie to you. The devil's trying to lie to you. They want to convince people that they are righteous before God. They Come on, just believe that you're righteous before God. If you believed in the gospel and appropriate the gospel and obey the gospel, and that becomes a daily lifestyle, all of these, all of these questions are answered. Assurance of salvation is answered. <laughs> But if you think that the gospel is for only unsaved people and for you one time in your life 30 years ago, uh, 30 years later, a lot has happened. A lot of deceptions have come and gone. But if you appropriate the gospel on a daily basis, you, you remove all opportunity for deception to grow in your life. You see, these truths ought to be daily experiences, but people struggle with believing God's love for them, and they struggle with God's acceptance of them, and they struggle with God's forgiveness of them, and they struggle with their security in heaven because... They see the gospel as a sermon for unsaved people. People work very hard at attempting to convince others. But God says the gospel will do that. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then he says this, the life I now live, the life I now live, I live the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. He appropriates the gospel right there. The life I now live, <laughs> I live by faith in the Son of God, what He did for me on the cross. Here Paul speaks in the present tense, I live today by faith in the Son of God every day. Paul saw justification not just as a past event, he sees justification as a present reality. You see, seeing yourself daily clothed in the righteousness of God will keep you in the love of God, in the love, in love with God. And being in love with God is what keeps you out of love with the world. Just let me just tie that again, tie that up again. If you see yourselves clothed in the love of God, if you see yourselves clothed in the righteousness of God. If you see God's arms around you, accepting you. And those understandings only come because you obey the gospel daily. Every day, I refuse to become a Peter who started becoming a hypocrite. Every day, I deny myself and I say, no, you're not Savior. Christ is Savior. Every day, I only rely upon Him. And when I see that every day, I can't but help to love God on a daily basis. And when I love God, I insulate myself from falling in love with the world. Because falling in love with the world is the precursor to abandoning the work of God and the will of God for your life, just like Demas did. Number three, the third essential to finishing well is a daily commitment to God as a living sacrifice. This is a little theological, but please follow me in this. I'll run through it, and then we'll get to the fourth point. Romans 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is how we worship God, by giving ourselves to Him. Uh, not singing a song, but by giving ourselves to Him. How do we give ourselves to Him? We commit ourselves. We make ourselves available. We surrender ourselves. We become willing. Now, two things that are very unique about burnt offerings. Because He's telling you to become an offering. And in their minds, they understood offering because the priests yeah. made offerings every day. And so he says, hey, by the way, you know that? The way they do offerings, I'm asking you now to become an offering, to give yourselves as a living sacrifice. But two things are very unique about burnt offerings. The first is the entire animal was consumed on the altar. The entire animal was consumed on the altar. It signified not only the atonement for sin, but also dedication and consecration of this offering to God. The entire offering was God's. Secondly, the fires on the altars shall not go out. Paul wrote this as an echo when he said, I beseech you therefore, brothers, to give your bodies as a living sacrifice. He was echoing Leviticus 6.12, which reads this, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offerings on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. In other words, the priests were to present a burnt offering twice a day, twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. There was always supposed to be this offering burning. It never stops. And this is the life Paul is calling us to. First, to be an offering that includes the entire part of our lives, every part of our life. And secondly, an offering that is uninterrupted and continual. Uninterrupted and continual. So we see number three is the third essential to finishing well, is to have a daily commitment to God as a living sacrifice. A daily commitment to God as a living sacrifice. How many of you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, Today, God, today, <laughs> say to God, God, today, I'm going to live for you and not for me. I don't do it every day. I wish I did. But this is a reminder that that offering is supposed to be burning all the time and it's supposed to be the whole entire animal, the whole entire being. That's a good thing for us to remind ourselves and not just do it once a month during communion. The fourth essential to finishing well is a little different. But just to remind you, the first one was, can anybody remember? Daily time of communion with God. The second was a daily appropriation of the gospel. The third is a daily commitment to God as a living sacrifice. And the fourth is... Daily surrender to the sovereignty of God. Daily surrender to the sovereignty of God. Daily surrender to the sovereignty of God. So many people struggle to serve God because of what somebody else has done. I get it. But I don't. It's like, forget it, God. Why? Because of what she did. <laughs> you know. And I've been wondering about that since I've, uh, I seem to have been ministering to a lot of people in that, in that vein, you know, where uh, people are like, man, they're all crooks, man. They're all crooks, uh, referring to ministers. And they're always uh, asking me if I'm going to be coming to work in an airplane next week. <laughs> guys are so funny and so uh, the thing I see happen with them all the time is that they can't serve God because of what some other minister preacher TV evangelist did or said they can't worship God because of their grandmother they can't serve God because of their father they can't so they can't give themselves but truthfully as you know uh, that is just a deception who doesn't serve God because of what some man did because many people are serving God because of what some man did, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, 
So it's really a heart issue, isn't it? It's a heart issue. And hard times brings out what's in there. It's really a motive. It's really the, what other people do that allows your true heart to just come out toward God. And so many people are pained and they are hurt. They're devastated by the sinful actions of other people. Their lives are crippled because of an action, the actions of other people. But then you see other people. Then you see people who have a heart for God and who fear God. They've been neglected, but somehow it made them stronger. They were rejected, but somehow that made them better. They were lied about, but somehow that caused them to fly higher. People have been molested, and somehow they came out more influential, stronger, with a purer message, holding a beacon of greater hope. Somehow good can come out of these horrible things that happen. Think of it for a moment. How many times did Joseph, after his brothers discovered who he was, after they discovered who he was, how many times did he say, it wasn't you. It was God who brought me to this place. It wasn't you. It was God who brought me here. Yeah, but we threw you in a pit. It wasn't you. It was God who brought me here and who exalted me. Yeah, but we, we lied about you. We wanted you dead. We, we sold you. It was God who brought me here. And I don't care what you go through. I know where you get to is going to be God who brought you there. You know, if you think about it, in the big picture, because this is the fourth point. This is the fourth thing. And if you hang your hat anywhere, and if you shoot your root anywhere regarding this next year and this next decade and beyond, let this be true of you, family, that you will have a daily surrender to the sovereignty of God. A daily surrender to the sovereignty of God. You know, so many people want to blame everybody else as to why they're crippled. When so many people who have a fear of God in their heart ended up a lot better having gone through the same fire. You see, God has this ability to take what you've gone through and make it a piece of your victory. God has that ability, and He promised that He would do that. He will take your ashes, and He will give you beauty for them, right? But he doesn't do that for the rebel. <laughs> this is what we have to understand. <clears throat> he doesn't do that for the Demas. <clears throat> he does that for the one who's broken before him and who actually gives it to him. Who appropriates the gospel and says, God, here's this life, take it. I don't care about the past or that this life had. I don't care about its future. I am yours. That's the person. It gives the ashes, and God says, now here's beauty. There's something beautiful for you. Because chances are in the next year and 10 years, every single person here will go through something that's going to attempt to derail them. Oh, Jacques, don't speak that over me. Okay. Not you, but everybody else <laughs> is going to go through some kind of disappointment, is going to go through something that's going to rattle their cage, is going to, is going to hear news they do not want to hear, whatever it might be. But... If you can hang your hat on this and shoot your root into this one essential for standing firm, it is that that God is sovereign and that I surrender to His sovereignty. And in all things, I can raise my hands and glorify Him. Because there's an end to this, folks, and God determines that end, and that end is going to be glorious and it's going to be beautiful, and this is going to be a portion of that. If you think about how it happened for Jesus, how they murdered him, how they crucified him, and how bloody that was. The Roman soldiers, merciless, 
vengeful. And, and, and the Pharisees, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. The people started chanting. I mean, how cruel. Can you imagine? That's a work of the devil. Oh, wait a minute. Did God not crush him? You see, and then God, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, look at this. People being saved. And it's happening all around the world in places we've never heard of. In places where the gospel is not even legal. People are getting saved today. You see, God can take anything and turn it for the good, for His glory. If you cannot see God to ultimately be sovereign, then you will be tempted to become bitter. Can I say that again? If you cannot see God as sovereign in your life, you'll be tempted to become bitter. Because things are not going to go my way, folks. Things are not going to go your way necessarily. And there's always going to be another person and, and, and a name and a face involved. And you're going you're to tend to become bitter. You'll be tempted to become bitter. And I can tell you now, it's impossible to live out God's plan for your life as a bitter individual. If you cannot see God to ultimately be sovereign... Not only will you be tempted to be bitter, but you will start drifting from God because that's what bitter people do. They did not get what they were hoping for. They did not experience what they were believing for. But if you can believe that God is sovereignly in control, even over other people's sinful actions and other people's disappointments, and other, peop other people being a disappointment to you, and other people not being faithful and not being loyal and being hurtful and being cruel towards you, if you can say, in the face of all of that, God is sovereign, and I will not take His sovereignty away in my life. He will remain sovereign in my life. <laughs> it's your best bet you have in this life and the next. God is sovereignly in control and even in the face of other people's hurts. God is not dethroned in your life. Psalm 32 verse 23 says, The steps, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. And when he delights, when he delights in his ways, the steps of a man, a righteous man, are established by God. Tell your neighbor, your steps are ordered by God. Your steps are established by God. Because he delights in your ways. And now, when you're convinced that that is true, you walk with your head up high, and you walk fearing no one and nothing, because you live to glorify God and God alone. Amen? Amen. I have one meme for you. It's not a funny one. <laughs> but it's one of our favorite guys. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which... You lay your head. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. I see a church of people who can agree upon this. God is on the throne in their lives, in this church, and there is not one there is not one authority that is being lifted up that is not of God. He's sovereign. I don't like all of it. But sometimes the world deserves it. What I'm saying is God is sovereign. And I tell you now, no man is going to change history outside of the sovereignty of God. God decides all things. Amen. Amen. And so if He decides all things... Guess what? My little life <laughs> and our lives together and your life individually, God is sovereign. Amen. He's on the throne. Hang your hat on it. Shoot your roots in there. And then say tonight when you go to bed, I have this problem. I have that problem. That person disappointed me. That person hurt me. This person is cruel towards me. That boss cannot stand me. Guess what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to create, and I'm, I'm really going to do this. I'm creating a pillow that has a cover that says the, so God, the sovereignty of God with this, with the scripture, where I can lay my head at night and I can sleep because I rest in God's hands. Amen.